Hello and welcome to the Tofugu Podcast. My name is Michael. My name is Jamal. And today our guest is Ian F. Martin, author of a new book called Quit Your Band, Musical Notes from the Japanese Underground. He's written about Japanese rock music uh, for The Guardian, for The Japan Times, and a lot of other places. And today he's going to talk with us about Japanese music and help us understand it better. Hi, Ian. Hi. How's it going? Uh, yeah, pretty good. I'm uh, just sort of um, sort of preparing for the release party for the um, for the book, actually, which is happening this evening. I oh, mean, cool. as we're recording it, happening this evening. Well, everyone listening to this, which it'll come out a week after we record, I hope you all went to the release party. <laughs> Uh, could you start yeah. off and just tell us, uh, tell our listeners uh, about yourself and how you got started writing about rock music in Japan? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've been I've been living in Japan for just gone fifteen years now, actually, and like I started writing about it just blogging, um, just because I wanted a project, um, just something to um, give me an excuse to be going out to all the shows that I was going to see, and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, after a while, I kind of got recruited by um, like David Hickey, who was the editor of the music page on the Japan Times at that time. And, you know, he kind of found me and started asking me to write stuff for, for actual money, which was which was great. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where um, where that spiraled from. Um, at the same time, yeah, I was going out to a lot of shows and most of them were terrible. So <laughs> I kind of wanted to to do something better mm. and I started putting on my own shows and then I realized how difficult it was <laughs> so um that and then sort of organizing shows and eventually starting up a record label was something that happened kind of parallel to that and here I am cool and what, what's the name of your what's the name of your record label uh the label's called call and response records call and response yeah um we're, we're brilliant <laughs> yes definitely everyone go check out call and response right now you can pause the podcast. Yeah. Just make sure you yeah. come back to the podcast. Yeah, go, go to our SoundCloud, listen to everything we've got on there, and then and then buy it, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one thing uh, I, I'm really interested in, because I know that you're, you're really knowledgeable about uh, Japanese music and, and the industry in general, um, and that's something I didn't know really anything about until I started reading your book. Um, could you uh, sort of lay down just briefly like how the Japanese music industry works, um, you know, and how it's different from maybe music industries in the UK or the US? That's a big question, actually. But <laughs> I know. And, and I said briefly, uh, it's <laughs> yeah. even more challenging. Just sum well, it I all up in a the, sentence. <laughs> I mean, it, it's difficult to make too many generalizations because a lot of the criticisms you can level at the Japanese music industry, it's very easy to, to turn that around and say, Oh, well, that's what it's like in the West as well. Mm-hmm. Although often there's some kind of difference in the nature of it or the extent of it. I do think that, and this is sort of backed up by what other people I know have told me as well, that the music industry here tends to be much more controlling. Mm-hmm. And partly that may be not just on the kind of the industry side, but maybe also on the artist side that they kind of... Um, that maybe a lot of artists feel more comfortable with that situation. You know, the, the two things maybe kind of feed into each other in this kind of spiral. Hmm. Um, like the the management structure as well. I mean, this is, to, we're talking about mainstream acts. Uh, there's a, a key difference, I think, is in the way that the management structure is different. That if you're a, uh, an artist in 
in the States, then your agent um, is somebody who works for you. Mm-hmm. They're an employee of you and they take a cut of what you, you do. Whereas in Japan, your agent is, well, like staff from a talent agency and you're an employee of the of the talent agency and they're paying you a salary. Oh, I see. So like in the US, your your agent's like you're in between between you and your your label or, or whatever company you're working with. And in Japan, it's yeah. like you work for the company. You're you're an employee. Yeah. And oh, okay. And so you can um, change changing your agency can be like a, a really big deal. There have been a number of cases where really, really famous acts. Um, it happened to um, Ami Suzuki and it happened to Glabe, who were like two of the biggest selling stars in the 90s. Mm-hmm. They um, they changed their management company and the management company didn't like that. So they just got blacklisted from the music industry for just uh, they just vanished completely. Just for looking for a, a better situation. Just because they changed. Yeah, just for changing to a, um, to another management company. And I, I would have said that you wouldn't be able to. um <laughs> You just don't find that happening in the um, in the states. Although there was that case last year, um, um, I can't remember who it was now. There was that American singer who got into a dispute with her management. Okay, and how is talent agency different than labels? I was going to ask that. Like, are, are they the same or different? No, the 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 label just is in charge of. Um, releasing the music and the talent agencies in charge of just like managing the artists and uh, managing their careers. I think that, I mean, there's some crossover, um, but basically I think a lot of the the power is more on the talent agency side. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, it's difficult as a, as a journalist, when I had to deal with like artists who were on, um, on major labels and like with talent agencies and things, it was kind of, hit and miss whether I'd be dealing with the label or dealing with the talent agency in, um, I'd hesitate to say, Oh, this is the way things are. I think it might vary a lot from, from company to company. Mm-hmm. Was there one that you found was easier or harder to work with? Like, was it easier to work with the label or easier to work with the, the talent agency? Um, I kind I hated working with both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh man so just different things to hate on each side i just i just kind of stopped after a while i think there was like one particular artist that i um in their case it was the label it was uh, the label were just like such dicks about it so (laughs) i i was just like oh i'm not dealing with major labels anymore i'm not dealing with agencies anymore what was the uh what was the situation was that the the situation that got you to to not deal with labels and and talent agencies anymore was was it like what i want to know i'm kind of interested in the story so i'm getting at like what what happened that was your breaking point well it was basically when you when you're writing stuff for the newspaper when you well when you're writing stuff for the japan times if an artist uses a pseudonym they want to use the they want to at least mention what their their real name is mm-hmm. just sort of in-house rules that if you're quoting somebody you can, you don't quote people under assumed names you know mm-hmm. um but sometimes the talent agencies, the labels just really do not want to let that information out that it's about just kind of controlling the image and things. You mm-hmm. know? So it was just like a case where I knew the artist's real name because, you know, I spent 30 seconds on Google, but <laughs> the, 
but the record label wouldn't confirm that and then started threatening to kind of uh, pull all of their support from the article and so I was like trapped in the middle of this situation and it was just stupid Wow. Um, I, I mean I don't care about using their real name or not you know it's like you know nobody needs to know that like Bob Dylan's real name is Robert Zimmerman you know it's yeah. Bob Dylan's name as an artist I think that's fine but you know uh I'm not going to I'm not going to say who it is because yeah, yeah. no they have to no it's uh, not <laughs> unless you really want to but uh unless you want to get air out some grievances yeah but yeah I, I remember it's you broadly like it's like I, it's not somebody that I, I don't want to kind of like, nah, give nah, this nah. person like hassle for it and now we're not here to like create feuds like it's yeah, not yeah. it's not a beef <laughs> you're not gonna start like start some beef on like yeah yeah I'm, I'm just interested in the story you can all you can change the yeah. names as much as you want yeah I mean it's so, but I think a lot of stuff, a lot of um, what it comes down to is, uh, um, you know, just like managing the image of an artist, which I think is something that um, that is done in a very top-down way in Japan. Mm-hmm. That's all. Uh, obviously, Western artists also like their image is managed like down to the finest detail, but um, not in quite such a kind of top-down way. And I think this is part of the reason why. Um, Japanese artists have struggled so much in um, sort of breaking overseas. Um, the Japanese talent agencies and uh, record labels, um, the management structure, the way that they kind of look to manage their artists, it just, it, it's too much hassle for yeah. <laughs> for just like media and mm-hmm. for media in the West who just aren't used to dealing with that kind of thing. And it's like, oh, why should we? Why should we take this? Well, you know, yeah. we can just somebody else. Um, I remember you mentioned in the in the book uh, that you know, but there there aren't any really negative reviews of music in Japan because you know the the labels or the the talent agencies have some kind of sway over the publication, and you know the publications kind of like uh, write what the labels want. You know, all the positive things about the album. Um, so that that kind of made me think about you know what well, what happens when these artists come to the West like is uh, they go outside of Japan in places where you know they the labels don't have sway mm. over the publication necessarily. Mm. It's I mean I I don't know if they um, I I don't know what the kind of the reaction to that is but um, yeah I think that maybe that can make um, that can make companies a little wary in dealing with the the overseas press. Mm-hmm. That, um, the idea that no publicity is bad publicity isn't an idea that really kind of um, has caught on in Japan. Mm, yeah, <laughs> sure. But I mean, a, a lot of the the reason that there's a, a lack of criticism, I do kind of worry if it's just that people are nicer here than they are <laughs> in the best, you know? <laughs> too nice to give a bad review. I don't want to do that. That would hurt their feelings. Yeah. I I mean, I, I, I think in a way that, that the idea that you don't criticize, that you don't criticize pop music is, it feels to me that over the past, you know, 20 years or so, that's an idea that is gaining more and more ground in um, in the West as well. Um, I think that the, the you know the old style music media kind of philosophy is still that you kind of you criticize you know yeah but 
if you look at the way that music's discussed online, there's very much this kind of idea that criticizing an artist is kind of like criticizing the fans of that artist. And it's like, hey, this is my opinion, you know, this is mm. my opinion. Yeah, my opinion yeah. is this sacred thing yeah. um, that should never be challenged. So you, do you think that, you know, with, I guess, the advent of, of social media and, and comments and things like that, that, you know, when when people are getting ready to to criticize something like an artist, you know, they, they kind of brace themselves for the fans and that kind of like softens their, yeah, and, softens their critic, their criticism. And in, in writing this book, I felt that as well. Like in it, there were a lot of cases when I was writing the book where I thought where my instinct would have been to just tear into something. Mm. And then there's this little voice in my head that stops me and says, no, wait, someone's going to read that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then that person is going to, you know, it's like, do I really can do I really want to own that criticism? It's like mm. any criticisms I made, I had to be very confident with myself. I can own that, that I could, I'm prepared to defend that. The the sort of offhand criticisms that you'd make just to kind of amuse yourself yeah. in the past. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I kind of um I felt a sort of kind of responsibility not to do that, to try and at least be a little bit fair, even mm. to stuff that I I loathe. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's more constructive as opposed to just oppositional. It's just like I didn't like I mean, that if, at if all. You can challenge it that way, then yeah. It's just that if you become a complete pansy about it then i mm, think that's yeah. a problem uh, <laughs> yeah no, no that makes a lot of sense i think uh i think uh, negative reviews can also give some sort of legitimacy to it so it's not i, I mean uh i studied a bit of media and kind of one thing that um they advised against in my courses were like um coming off as too like fluffy and coming off like letting your pieces sound too um i guess just like fluff pieces like like you're just like constantly praising and then it starts to like sound like an advertisement and then like you're not writing a story, you're writing an advertisement for something that didn't like, isn't paying you and it just sounds um, forced. Hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that the, um, with, with music, I mean, I don't really know if music critics really need to exist anymore, but uh, with music <laughs> journalism, uh, I mean like there's music critics, don't really need to exist when you can just go on to Spotify and listen to yeah. the music. Right? Um, I mean, I, I feel that way about a lot of critics in general, but yeah, I'll take your point. It's yeah. just, yeah. But um, I think music journalism still has a, a value in the sense mm. that it can, it can kind of analyze the music and kind of maybe express it in a way that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of just hearing it, you know, yeah. you can put it in some kind of context or it can, it can highlight certain aspects of it that can enrich the, the listening experience. Um, but I think, so I, I think the writing about music nowadays, that's really kind of important. Um, it's working alongside the music to kind of give it a narrative and a story as opposed to uh, yeah, judging it, it and then kind of looking its so nose what? down at it. I would, is that, is that kind of how you, you would describe it? I think what you have to do is you you've got to yeah you you have to kind of engage with the music in some way and, mm. and um you have to think about okay what are they trying to do here mm. and then your criticism of it should partly be down to kind of how successful have they been in achieving what they're trying to and that's a very difficult thing to do because you're talking about the the artist's intentions and yeah. they you, which is something that you can't really know but 
so so it, there there is a bit of just like reading tea leaves a little mm. bit about it. But mm-hmm. No, yeah. I, I think you have to kind of make an effort to do that, and as you say, kind of like um, create a, um, a narrative, put it in the context of some kind of narrative, mm. or yeah. But and do you feel like this kind of like uh, this narrative is is not happening in Japan? It's it's just sort of uh, all you know, positive reviews, but, but how about for like the underground well, the music? Me- I, I know that's the, like the what you cover more. The control the narratives, don't mm. they? That's like what all of this control of the image is really about. Mm. So. Right. Um, in the underground music, well, no one writes about it or cares about it or listens to it. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's, um, you know, that part of, uh, part of what was fun about writing this book is that <laughs> I'm writing one of these things in a, you know, it, it's territory that hasn't really been kind of mapped to a, to a great extent, even in the Japanese mm. language, I think. Hmm. Uh, there so are so other is books. your book like one of the, the few sources, like in any language that, that covers Japanese underground music? Well, there've been a few good books written in English about it. And, um, there, and of, of course there are things about it. There's, there's a lot about it in Japanese, yeah. but, um, there was, I mean, Julian Cope had his book about like 1970s Japanese rock, which um, I thoroughly enjoyed. A lot of people in Japan, a lot of people in the music scene and the people who kind of, uh, he was actually writing about kind of hate that book. Cause he, really? You know, yeah. He, he appears to have kind of made up quite a lot of it. Oh, okay. So, uh, <laughs> I, think, I think that's fine. Like he's... Um, he he's he's writing a sort of greater cosmic truth you know mm-hmm. but um <laughs> um but that book kind of covers the 1970s and it really kind of stops before um punk started in japan mm. then um there was um there's this writer um uh kato david hopkins he's uh based in kansai and so his kind of and he he's been involved in the sort of underground music scene i think since the 80s and has a very kind of deep very deep much more detailed knowledge than i do about mm. about that and he wrote a kind of an interesting and sort of very uh, very detailed book um that he self-published i think last year um it was called uh dokiri and i can't remember the full title now mm. but but you said his name was what? Uh, Kato David Hopkins. Okay. Well, if you uh, want some more information, check out that book, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, if you really want to know about like the punk scene and like the underground music in the 1980s, right? You know, picking up where Julian Cope left off, and mm. uh, you know, with a, a greater respect for <laughs> the actual kind of real things that actually happened, then you know, his book has like a wealth of information in it. Um, and also because he's based in Osaka or in, in Kansai, anyway. I think there's a slight, it has a different perspective to mine, which is like, like I said, um, it, it has much more of a Tokyo um, perspective. Mm-hmm. So, and then there was like, um, what was it David Novak's book, Japan Noise, um, which mm-hmm. really focuses on the noise scene. So all of these books have like different focuses or like different time frames. And so I was writing about the, um, the music scene now mm. the difficulty with that is that you don't really have the um, the sense of perspective that some kind of distance in time gives you i don't really know who the important acts of the last few years are because you know maybe in 10 years time i'll be able to look back and say oh they were important mm. at the moment it's all here and it's all now you know i don't know what's going to be forgotten or what's yeah. going to just like leave no impact so that's the 
I think the big challenge of writing about that. So I, the way I had to frame that was just by focusing it on my experience and then using the artists that I'm writing about more as a way of more as like a window into some aspect of the music scene rather than necessarily as saying, okay, these are the important acts that you should be listening to, you know? Right. Well, who are some of the, uh, the artists that you, you mentioned in the book or, or maybe just uh, some of your favorites, even if you can't predict the future and, you know, tell if they're going to be really seminal artists for the, pe- the next like decades to come. But, uh, but any, anyone that you have your eye on that you, you really like right now. Well, I mean, in the last, over the past sort of in 10 years or so, there's like a few acts that are, um, that have somehow managed to not, uh, not quit their bands after their first album, which is what's it, what usually seems to happen to all my favorite bands. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, I think Panic Smile have been a really, really important band. Um, I mentioned them in the book and they were, um, Panic Smile were this band out of, they were out of Fukuoka in the, in Kyushu in the kind of southwest of Japan. And they grew up at around the same time as Number Girl, who were just like genuinely one of the most important bands of the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came out of the same sort of Fukuoka punk scene. And they both moved to Tokyo around about the same time. Panic Smile never became like really, really big, but I think they were really influential. And certainly just for the bands that were around me at the time when I was getting into the music scene, um, Panic Smile were like one of the bands they all looked up to. A lot of my favorite bands in the last 10 years have been kind of under their influence. There was a band called uh, Tackle Bonds who were sort of on hiatus at the moment. But Tackle Bonds were a fantastic band. Um, put out a couple of amazing albums, more or less self-released. Uh, the Mornings as well, they were another uh, another group who've now split up, unfortunately. Mm. Again, like two albums and then, then stopped. But um, yeah, and, uh, so there, there is a certain sound that I think is a kind of Tokyo alternative or Tokyo kind of underground sound that was to a great extent defined by Panic Smile, just like really like messed up rhythms, these like re- almost kind of like kind of math rock rhythms, but mm. with this uh, uh, sort of tortured punk kind of <laughs> sound to them as well. Um, really, really interesting music. That's, that's quite a mashup right there, math rock and and tortured punk i can i mean i guess like fugazi would uh, are a kind of it, looking overseas fugazi i think is where that a lot of these bands are taking inspiration from so once uh, i know you mentioned uh, that a lot of your bands your favorite bands uh end up quitting um so and it, so what what are the reasons for that like well why why did, i mean it may be different for everyone but it is have you seen like sort of a pattern that the underground japanese rock goes through that kind of leads them to quitting or if they don't quit where do they where do they go like you just you have something you want to say and then you say it and then if you're going to carry on then i think you you need somebody needs to give you a reason to carry on and the music scene doesn't really give them reasons to carry on mm-hmm. you know like there isn't like one of the things that makes the music scene here so interesting in a way is that people have no chance of getting famous mm. And so just do what you want, right? There's no point in 
there's no point in like chasing some kind of illusory um, sort of ghost of success. Mm. You're never going to get it. So just make what you want. And people do and they make amazing things. But the flip side of that is that once you've made it, nobody is going to care about that thing, you know, mm-hmm. not really like the same five, 10 people are going to be coming to your shows every time. And then gradually those people are going to get married and have kids and then they're not going to be able to come out quite as much. And, you know, the energy goes out of it. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's sort of what happens to bands. Yeah. And one or two albums, you know, that's really interesting. That's really interesting because that that Life up with people. That's all same as anywhere. I think the idea that um that like there's no there's no illusion that it's just like because uh, I mean I feel like in a lot of places that is the one driving force for a lot of musicians that are trying to really um, push their sound forward. They're trying to ma- like make it to a sustainable point where they can uh, start playing out arenas and just you know have that kind of live that uh I, I sounds cliche but like that rock star life. Um, and so I think it's just kind of interesting that uh, a certain soundscape is going to like be kind of bred out of um, being able to kind of do exactly what you want with no hesitance because you know you don't have to follow a scheme because if you were to, you still probably wouldn't make it. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously it's not quite as simple as that because right. the, the idea that these people are making this music completely freely, mm. um, just purely based on you know, following their own kind of creative muse is like an oversimplification that actually there's a lot of little incentives kind of within the scene Mm. and like, you know, just kind of your status in relation to the other bands or like, um, just, you know, I said that a lot of these bands I really liked were kind of under the influence of, uh, of this band Panic Smile and, yeah, a lot of these, there's, there were a lot of people who they're making this music, not necessarily because this is what their own creative, um, uh, you know, vision is telling them to make. Right. They're making this music because this is what their senpai, this is what their seniors mm. in the music scene are making. Yeah. And so they're like, okay, he runs the venue. This is the kind of music that gets booked right, at right. that venue. Maybe not quite as cynically as that, but not... Um, but not as, not as, uh, as just like bohemian as make what you want. Yeah. And like, yeah, I got you. I got yeah. you. I mean... It, there are people like that as well, of course, but right. it, it's 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 complicated by a number of factors. Um, I mean, I was talking. I remember I was talking to um, the singer from Boningen about this. Boningen are like a Japanese band based in London. Okay, they, they got quite successful. Uh, they, they formed in London, and they're really kind of very much like a London band. And so his attitude to the music scene is sort of informed by his experiences in Europe. And, you know, I was saying this to him about, I think the the good thing about the music scene in Japan is that, you know, people aren't kind of, the, the music isn't um, sort of tainted by this pursuit of success. And, and he said, yeah, but it's tainted by their pursuit of, of other things. You right. know? And, and he's right. It, it, it is. But I, I, st- I still stand by okay so it's 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 more like a different it's like instead of a carrot they're chasing like i don't know like a a a cucumber it's just a different Mm -hmm. it's just their different incentive much smaller carrot maybe much smaller (laughs) carrot okay (laughs) (laughs) okay i got you okay um i know kind of your um main i guess like 
scene that you were involved in was uh was kind of more of the rock and um punk crowd um and i've been seeing recently that there and maybe i mean maybe this is just me personally um i've been seeing kind of through like youtube and different um uh outlets that hip-hop is kind of like making a um uh, I don't know, like making some waves, uh, at least internationally. I'm seeing that um, Japanese hip hop and kind of Asian hip hop in general uh, is make is starting to make waves. Um, is that something that you've like seen, or is that is hip hop not even on like the radar in the underground music scene? Is that could you kind of speak on that? I don't want to kind of make any too sort of broader sweeping statements right. about this because it isn't something that I know a great deal mm-hmm. about. But um, from my understanding of the hip hop scene in Japan that it it's very kind of it still is very underground and it's still very wrapped up in its own little sub scenes which don't even communicate with each with each other that right. much you know between one part of the hip hop scene and another but on the other hand elements of hip hop are kind of they do seem to be reaching out more they say it seems to be touching other things a lot more mm. um i mean one of the th- one of the things that does seem to be we do seem to be seeing a lot more of now is um like young female mcs yeah yeah uh, i mean like Pat- patrick saint michel at the japan times uh, another writer there he's written about this a lot and um i mean i think he's gone into it much more much more detailed than me mm. but yeah i mean that like there's this um this so yeah there, there do seem to be these uh there seems to be um a sort of mini boom in um these kind of like young female mcs and they're uh i, I mean there, there's this girl called uh, mc pero like I don't know if she, I don't think she's like that famous or anything, but she's a, she's an interesting case in point because she's just somebody that I know from the um, I mean, I, I've known her since she was in like high school, really. She was just like <laughs> one of those girls who she'd be hanging out at, uh, at gigs, yeah. at, like indie shows, you know, at, like these indie and punk shows, the same shows that I was going to. Um, and she she sings in. Uh, like an indie pop band as well mm. called uh, uh, is it Iyayen or something I can't remember and she's very much like part of the indie scene mm. and so when she she's suddenly she's like this hip hop MC and it's like what, what happened there you know mm. and I don't know I, I think that the, the boundaries there at least in that area are quite fluid so and there are a lot of track makers just making some like really kind of crazy stuff that I don't know if you'd really categorize as hip hop or not, but you know, like food man and stuff like that. So I, I think that, I mean, with any kind of music that comes from overseas, there's always like a 10, 15 year period where people don't quite know how to do it, mm-hmm. especially something that's as idiomatic as hip hop. Like, it took America like um, 10 years to really sort of <laughs> uh, before like punk really broke. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. And it, it took, I mean, it took the UK a really long time before like British hip hop wasn't embarrassing, you know? <laughs> 
and now it's pretty great with the whole grime scene and right it's like well i mean it started um you know it just started mixing with things Mm -hmm. that were kind of ready there and like i mean the the first massive attack album's pretty much a hip-hop album you Mm. know it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have felt like it at the time but if I think that hip hop's kind of moved on, uh, moved in such in, in a way that you can listen back on it and be like, okay, that's basically a hip hop album, yeah. and um, that was something that has its roots in the whole um, like um, the whole Bristol scene, which was like um, these like reggae sound systems and mm. uh, the way that and the Bristol punk scene as well, which was much more sort of funk and jazz based. Um, groups like bands like the pop group and like Rip Brig and Panic and things like that, uh, Maximum Joy. So it's like finding a way to make something work within like a local idiom. And hip hop in Japan, it's doing that now. That's all. I got you. Uh, yeah. So to to uh, Jamal's point where he was mentioning, you know, finding uh, different artists on YouTube, um, mm. I was wondering if you've seen a change in the underground scene. I know we were talking earlier about uh, the underground scene in Japan is chasing kind of a, a smaller carrot than, you know, mainstream artists. They don't have this dream of becoming big. Um, but I, I've i noticed even in just the way YouTube suggests things to me or now that I'm on SoundCloud, um, I'll just stumble upon artists. Whereas before, like finding Japanese artists had to be very intentional. Um, and even when I was trying to find Japanese artists, I wouldn't find hardly anything <laughs> and now without trying uh japanese artists are just sort of appearing to me on the internet um so i was wondering if you've seen any change in the underground scene that maybe the small carrot has become a different kind of cucumber or tomato <laughs> or something <laughs> that uh now through the internet that they're like oh now I we have, have an no outlet idea what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> has the underground scene uh like been able to to find an audience through the internet and has that become a different incentive for them bands are more aware of the internet and how it works it's definitely i mean on a local level it's really changed things because now now you can kind of yeah now you can get information you know now you can just see who's playing at the live venues you know you can follow the band and you can get their kind of live information just delivered to you in your social media feeds and things. So it's much easier to kind of follow somebody you like, although I don't think it's really made the audience any bigger. Hmm. Um, do you, do you see that changing? Do you see them like leveraging that or will it just kind of continue the way it's been? Some bands are very good at leveraging it, but that's usually where there's some kind of, there's usually when when you see a band who's very good at um, leveraging the uh, the internet to to get success, there's usually some kind of something much more traditional behind them. Hmm. There's usually some kind of like savvy management behind them that is kind of you know that has like a they have a grid somewhere and they're sort of plotting each kind of move. Uh, I mean, sure, that's what happened with like uh, Suiobino Campanella, for example, who seemed to come out of the indie scene and like get really, really big. Mm. But if you look at the way they've, um, if you look at their kind of career trajectory, they've been quite 
clever about it. So are you are you kind of touching on the idea of like industry plants? I don't I I, I don't know if that that's necessarily the case. I mean, sometimes. I mean, it's definitely true that like major labels will kind of they'll have an informal deal with a band, but and then like behind the scenes, they'll be kind of managing them. But the, the first one or two releases will come out on an indie label. That's always happened. Right. I mean, like a lot of indie labels are just kind of like feeder labels to, to the majors and things. I just mean that um, there are some, there are some people out there either like within the bands themselves or like within the band's management um, who are kind of getting savvy to the way the internet works. Although I, I don't think, broadly speaking, I, I think that most bands just find any kind of promotional activity uh, a huge, huge hassle and mm. sort of <laughs> prefer not to do any of it. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, a, a, it's a big time uh, As a guy who runs a record label, it's uh, uh, it's a big problem for me. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So actually, I wanted to ask about your, your record label. Um, could could you sort of highlight any artists from your label or any anything that you know you wanna you wanna throw out there and then also maybe five artists not on your label that uh, that you like. Okay, let me think about this. Well, the um, I mean, there's a, a couple of things we've got coming up um, next week. There's this uh, album called Ninjin by a band called Loshi. Uh, Loshi are actually two French guys, but they they're based in Tokyo and you know the band's kind of like grown up in tokyo is which is a sort of i guess you'd call it like like post-rock electronica that's where i'm kind of filing it um instrumental experimental stuff and really really sort of quite beautiful um then i think maybe the week after that is when uh, loop rider's new album comes out um Loop Rider are this um, insane band that hmm. um, <laughs> that I've been releasing. They, this is their third album in like one and a half years, which mm-hmm. is you know Dang. more than most bands make in a, in, a, in their career in yeah. Japan. And it's also their third completely different genre that they've done an album in. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so is that what you mean by insane? Like just in, in yeah. productivity well, and also in insane? In that it, yeah, it makes no sense why they're doing any of the things they're doing. <laughs> but I'm I'm very happy to be part of it. <laughs> yeah, like the, the first album was like a mixture of heavy metal, shoegaze, and J-pop. The second album was <laughs> like hardcore and noise, and then the third album is just like a single 25-minute long sort of post-rock in, in, uh, instrumental track. You know, kind of like. Um, sort of mogwai godspeed you black emperor right kind of thing. and it, it's a sort of concept album about the ocean and the origin of life or something like that so i everyone should buy that you yeah, know? that sounds pretty great <laughs> um, that's going to be awesome and we've got um a whole load of other things we're working on like recently we put out uh this i mean the um the title of the book quit your band came out um came out of this this band called Nakigao Twintail, who um, I just saw them almost by accident at a show about four years ago. Uh, they were still in high school at the time, and they just kind of came out on stage and just played the most like insane, sort of wild kind of punk rock set. Mm. Then just stopped in the middle of the set, walked off stage, and then came back on and announced that they were. A completely different band and that they were this idol group <laughs> who were traveling with Nakika Twintail on t- tour and then they said we're going to do a song now it's called 
suicide. And then they just did this idle song about suicide. (laughs) The whole time they're doing the song, because they they were still like high school kids, right? Like the band's mums were all just sitting there, just looking at the the side of the room. (laughs) So their mothers were like watching the the suicide idol. (laughs) With their faces in their hands, just like, oh God, what have we done? That's amazing. (laughs) Um, but That's then awesome. they, had, they had this they had this one song where the lyrics are just like yamete aru konna bando yamete aru which is just like i'm going to quit this band and i just thought that was the, <laughs> it's just like yeah right isn't that it just quit your band you know That's, yeah great so I, um they split up immediately afterwards which you know <laughs> <laughs> and that but they reformed like they all moved to tokyo to university and mm. they reformed mm. like a couple of years ago so i just like grabbed them and just threw them into a studio and just said record everything you have yeah. now mm-hmm. <laughs> that's pretty great uh, their cds yeah that's that's how yeah that sounds like really exciting uh, for you know to to be part of the underground scene because you know you never know when the bands are going to split up and if you saw them once maybe they only performed a couple times and you're like oh i got to see the the, the suicide idol group yeah you know, before <laughs> like the, the yeah, couple they times they were around before. yeah <laughs> but um Band's not on my label that I really like. I mean, uh, I mean, I said before, like Panic Smile, very important mm. band for me. Uh, Yours in the Sky are one of my favorite bands. Um, they like started out as a sort of hardcore band, then they turned into this really like minimal like disco punk thing, and then they just kind of kept shedding members until like they lost the bass player, the drummer, until it was just the guitarist and the vocalist doing this kind of um very sort of stripped down sort of loop based um like dance music mm. and everything every step they've been there's been something that i found interesting and i just I, I love them uh the falsettos uh i always mention them in interviews and i'm sure the band hate me now because you know they think i'm some kind of crazy stalker but <laughs> they're an incredible band um i sort of indie rock alternative thing they remind me a lot of the breeches in that it's they have like great pop melodies that they just deliver in really unexpected ways um they're an incredible band yeah i can can, keep going (laughs) oh yeah and and um i definitely wanted to get a list uh, of this we're going to put it in the show notes so that people can look up all of these uh these bands you mentioned and and you can always add add to the list also uh, in the show notes. Um, but I was wondering, you know, if, if a listener or perhaps myself or Jamal, we go to, to Japan and we're like, Oh, we want to see some underground music. Like where, where can we go? Like how, how, uh, how accessible is it? And, and how can we access this? Tokyo has, I don't know, at least 500 live venues. <laughs> okay. Name so, all 500. Um, <laughs> Just kidding. No, name, name, they, the, name a few. Like the, the kinds of bands that I like, there's maybe only about four or five venues where those bands kind of regularly play. Um, like where I live in Koenji, there's the um, the UFO Club and Niman Denatsu. Um, the UFO Club tends to have more like garage rock, psychedelic music, also a lot of experimental music and. Uh, and things uh niman denatsu is more like punk and hardcore although again they have some of these more alternative shows as well then in shimo kitazawa there's three just like the number three um 
just good indie rock live venue. Um, Shinjuku Motion, Akihabara Club Goodman, and Koiwa Bushbash. Those are most of the stuff I like tends to congregate around those like what's that six venues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are, those are the the Ian recommended places. They're the if you're into the kind of stuff I'm into, then those are the places that <laughs> you should be going. Yeah, and if you're not into the kinds of stuff I'm into, there is something for you. Trust me. Mm-hmm. I just don't know where it is. Yeah, in the 500 <laughs> venues. Yeah, one of the other ones. Well, Ian, uh, thanks so much for for coming on the show. Like, that, I I feel like I, we could go on and on forever about the music because uh, it seems like you know you know you you've been writing about it for so long. You know so much about it. Um, so we're re- really happy that you're able to come on the show. No, no, thanks for thanks for inviting me on. It's been uh, been lovely talking to you. Yeah, and everyone, uh, go check out Ian's book. It's on sale now through the end of time on Amazon. Uh, quit your band. And check out Call and Response Records, Ian's record label. And thanks for listening.